Well, friends, I have been wrong many times in my life. Uh, kids. One of those times in which I was wrong was I didn't dismiss, dismiss the kids. Kids, off you go. Uh, and one of the other times that I have been wrong, there's two times. This is, you've got, there's one I just did. Here's going to be the second one. See you kids. Bye, Jane. Um, one of the other times in which I have been wrong in my life is when I predicted years ago that an increasingly secularizing America would throw off morality. I couldn't have been more wrong in that. Spend five minutes on Facebook or Twitter and you'll see that. As one author has said, Twitter hates me, uh, makes me hate liberals. Facebook makes me hate conservatives and Instagram makes me hate myself. I've laughed at that all week this week, just reading that every again. It's so true. It's so true. And so friends, choose your issue no matter what side and you will find an ocean full of ink spilt, guilting you, shaming you, bullying you to get you to believe what they want you to believe is right or wrong. And so moralizing has never been more popular. What's interesting is how virtue is not. As the objective God is thrown off by many and the subjective God is adopted, we don't find an absence of the call to morality, but we do seem to be finding an absence of the pursuit of wisdom. C.S. Lewis writes it best in his fantastic book, The Abolition of Man, when he says, quote, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to their own wishes. Author Peter Kreft has written also, he says, quote, In an age of anything goes, virtue is a revolutionary thing. In an age of rebellion, authority is the radical idea. In an age of progress, tradition is the hero on the white horse. He goes on to say that modern man has fallen victim to the idea that morality is man-made, private, subjective, a matter of feeling, and therefore I feel replaces I believe. And so friends, increasing moralization, that's what we're seeing, absent it seems from the pursuit of wisdom. I feel replaces the pursuit of truth and wisdom. And friends, this morning, the book of James will reverse this trend. As he continues to define for us what authentic Christianity really is. He'll call us this morning to ask God for wisdom, knowing he will give it if we ask in faith. That's what he's going to call us to. And so, brothers and sisters, as a very, very, very amateur historian, I can't think of a time that was more absent of wisdom and the pursuit thereof. Than now. And what I have prayed this week is that uh, this collection of deeply flawed and yet gloriously saved saints, that we would be a countercultural community. We would be a people that was trying to pursue the truth, whatever that is, and try to apply it correctly, be wise in our pursuit. And so as a consequence, may we be that kind of people, a people that pursue the truth and that seek to apply the truth, seek to be wise. In a world that seems to be evidently ambivalent of wisdom. So a big idea this morning, real simple. Get wisdom, get it honestly from God. Get wisdom, 
and get it honestly from God. Now that was the counsel of the wisest man that was said to ever to live. King Solomon said, get wisdom in Proverbs 4, 5 and 6. Get wisdom, do not forsake her, and she will keep you and she will guard you. And so we must get wisdom, but we must not only get wisdom as we will see, we must get it honestly. We must get it in faith from the Lord. So just to kind of rehearse where we have been, we started last week. James is writing. James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, we believe. uh, And he's writing to his church that has been dispersed uh, because of persecution. James is their old pastor. He's He's concerned about his people. They've experienced a lot of trials in their faith. And they're now living in new places with new ideas that are pressing around them. And he wants them, as they have spread out in these new places, he wants them to not hide from the word, but instead to also embrace the word and be doers of the word, not hearers only. He's laying out, James is, what Christianity not only believes, but he's going to emphasize what Christianity does, what it looks like. In other words, James is a book about wisdom. It's a book about wisdom. Get wisdom, get it honestly from God. Now, last week we considered how God, how we uh, we we considered from verses two and four, how uh, we should count it all joy when trials come, because we know it said that trials test our faith by producing steadfastness. Steadfastness gives us completion if we let it. In other words, I said last week, pain produces perfection, so we can count all trials joy. Now, what happens here in verses 5 to 8 is he's continuing his call. What he's doing now is he's going to help us apply. How do, we, how do we get that steadfastness? How do we live it out? How do we let it, as it were? How do we count it all joy? That's what he's going to do this morning. So let me read the passage. James chapter 1, verse 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is an unstable man. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Four points this morning. Here's the first. Wisdom seeks God by knowing. Wisdom seeks God by knowing. Now, before we get into asking about wisdom, I want you to take a, take a look at that very first word in verse 5. Do you see it? Look down there, verse 5. What's the first word? If. If. That struck me this week as I was studying. So we tend to focus on what comes next, and we should, to be clear. But we shouldn't discount that word if. Right? James has just told us that trials test our faith, produce steadfastness, which produces completion. And since it does, for those of us who in trials count it all joy, knowing God is doing something, what happens? Well, apparently we become stronger, wiser for what we learned from that previous trial, right? And as a result, we gain wisdom about what to do, how to think, how to love in the very next trial that comes. That's the logic of seems to be what's going on there. More particularly, we learn uh, more about the will of God for our lives because of that trial. So let me try to illustrate this. Uh, One week from tomorrow is my 19-year anniversary with my beloved wife. So next week. Now, 
When we were getting married, uh, we knew that we were going to meet trials of various kinds over the course of our life together. Uh, It's not happily ever after for those of you that you should know that. Like, it's not that simple. I wish it was. So what did we do at the front end of our marriage? Well, we went and got premarital counseling. We we listened for some wisdom, right? Uh, And that was helpful to us. But you know what was more helpful? 19 years of being married has been really helpful to kind of learn to grow and produce steadfastness, right? All the trials, whatever they were, that's come up over the last 19 years, through it all, I've had to go back to Christ in prayer and study his word and seek wise counsel. And as a result of all of the trials over the past 19 years, she and I have more steadfastness and we are more, though not yet at all, fully complete. We're more complete, but more complete than we were 19 years ago. And so as a result, I have some wisdom to apply to today. Whereas I didn't have as much as I did 19 years ago. And so that was happening. All of that happens because we counted all the trials joy. It produced steadfastness. Steadfastness has made us more perfect than we were in 2003. So the point is, guys, sometimes we don't lack for wisdom because we've already asked God. And as a result, we have some wisdom to apply. Proving exactly what verse 5 goes on to say. Wisdom was given to us. And so first off, wisdom seeks God, and as a result, we can know God, we can know what wisdom is amidst our trials for having done it before. But that's not most of us, right? We still lack for wisdom. So let's move there. Secondly, wisdom asks God for wisdom. Wisdom asks God for wisdom. So when trials come, because none of us are Uh, yet perfect, lacking nothing, we're going to therefore lack wisdom in the trial. Do you see the connection between verse 4 and 5? Right? Since we don't, we're not yet perfect, lacking nothing, we therefore then lack wisdom in the trial. And so, James tells us how to move towards lacking nothing. By recognizing our lack and ask God that doesn't lack for anything. Did y'all catch that connection there between 4 and 5? So I can't tell you, friends, how many times. Well, let me back up a little bit. We, we, need to, we need to understand that in the trial, since we lack, we need to go to God and ask him for wisdom. James is going to go on to say in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have, you all know the rest of this, because you what? Do not ask. That's right. And so what does he tell us to do? Ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Now, asking God is done how? Through the ministry of prayer. It's how asking God happens, through the ministry of prayer. So, Captain Obvious here, guys. Captain Obvious, if you don't pray to God, you can't expect to receive wisdom from God. If you're not praying, asking God for wisdom, then don't expect to receive wisdom. And friends, I can't tell you how many times amidst, I, I met with somebody amidst a current trial, and I asked them, have you prayed about this? Or have you been praying about this? I can't tell you how many times the response comes back, not really, or not much, or no. And maybe this explains why there's so little wisdom in the world. Because we moderns rely so heavily upon ourselves. And as a result, we so rarely pray. And when we do, even when we do, so often our prayers are, well, God, can you just go ahead and bless what I've already done here? Or can you just get me, get out, have you just, God, can you just get me out of this? Or, uh, God, can you just explain this? All fine prayers. But the point is, If we are going to rise above the cultural winds, church family, we are going to have to be people that pray. Because wisdom 
comes, says says James, through asking God. And asking God comes through praying to God. We have to be a people that pray. But also, I want you to notice something else that's going to mess with us. Look at verse 5. At verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks, what's the word there? Wisdom. We've been putting that emphasis on this morning. Let him ask God. I want you to notice, in other words, what the passage does not say. It does not say that if any of you needs to get out of a trial, ask God. It's not what it says. Nor does it say if any of you needs an explanation for why this trial is happening, ask God. Also not what it's saying. You're free to do that. Matter of fact, we could go to other places in the Bible and it shows that. But that's not what's being counseled here. No, it says amidst the trial, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. James assumes that his readers are not interested in just getting out of the trial, nor are they interested in just understanding the trial, all good things. He assumes the readers need and want to know what to do in the trial so that they might produce steadfastness and eventually lack nothing. You see that? Once again, I'm flagging the pursuit of wisdom here, the unpopularity of the pursuit of wisdom. Too often we want uh, something explained or we just want to get out of it. But rarely do we seem to be interested in correctly applying the truth while in the trial to the glory of God. I'll say that again because it's really important that we grasp it. Oftentimes, we tend to just, if we do pray in the trial, we just want to, God, get me out. Or God, help me understand this. Fine things. But rarely do we go to God and say, God, how can I correctly apply the truth? How can I be wise in this trial? So that you might then produce in me steadfastness and steadfastness would then uh, result in completion. And by the way, that's going to be, that's my working definition of wisdom. Wisdom, I understand, is correctly applying the truth. Correctly applying the truth. That's wisdom. And the application of correctly applying the truth might be just said to be love. Like correctly loving. So the application of wisdom could be something that we need to understand something we need to think. We need to think this way or not that way. Uh, Wisdom could be something we need to do. I need to go actually say this or do that action. Uh, In other words, wisdom is love. It's correctly applying the truth in love. And love uh, demands or love demands our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Wisdom is going to involve, in other words, all I'm saying here, wisdom involves all of us as we try to correctly apply the truth. So when we don't know what to think or do amidst a trial because we do lack and we want to get to completion, we need to first understand we need to pray. Asking God for wisdom. Amidst the trial, asking God to then, secondly, how do I correctly apply the truth? How do I love in this situation, God? How can I love you and love my neighbor? How can I display the gospel? That's the work. James is calling us to. When a trial comes, the Christian goes to God in prayer, asks for wisdom. He or she doesn't just ask to get out of it, do that, but also doesn't just ask to explain it. Yes, do that. But we say also, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to know how to correctly think about this. Help me to know how to act in this. God, give me wisdom. How do I apply the gospel? How do I apply the truth in this trial in order that it might produce in me completion and so honor you? How do I love in this? And these prayers could be done in all kinds of different ways, right? They, uh, these prayers could be done in the moment when you're in the trial. These prayers could be done when you're at your home as you're weighing out what to think or do. 
These prayers could be done with a pastor or with a community group or over coffee or dinner as you seek wise counsel from others. These prayers might be said as corporate prayers, right? They're not just individual. We as a church have to go through trials. So we might do that as we've done this morning, praying together in the corporate gathering. This might come on that first Sunday night of the month at the prayer gathering. It might come there. There are a thousand places these prayers are offered. But asking God for wisdom amidst the trial, we must do. So first we've said wisdom knows. Secondly, we said wisdom asked God for wisdom in prayer. And thirdly, wisdom remembers the character of God amidst praying. Wisdom remembers the character of God as it prays or amidst its prayer. So again, look, take down, look, look down at the passage there. If any of you lacks wisdom, it says, let him ask God. And then you'll notice he goes on to explain four compelling truths about God. I love this. Don't you love that the Bible works this way? James anticipates what we often feel amidst the trials. Can I trust him? Will he care? Will he answer? Is God going to be a jerk about this, as it were? When we are in trials, if God is going to produce in us steadfastness and make us complete, we are going to have to regularly go to God in prayer, ask for wisdom, and we, and can, and we can be comforted in knowing that when we do, we can recount, we can remember the character of God, that the one we're going to is going to listen to us. Four things. Here's the first. Remembering the character of God. First off, we remember that he gives. That he gives. Again, look at the passage. Let him ask God who, what's the word? Gives. Gives. And he does give, doesn't he? Right now, he's giving every one of you breath in life right now. He's giving you food and clothing. Aren't you glad you got coats, right? He's giving you that. Those are every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, as James will tell us. He's given you a place to live. He's given you his word. He's given you the privilege of prayer. He's given you friends and family and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given you the church, right? But most of all, he's given you his son, his only beloved son. Y'all know the verse. For God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave. He gave his only son. God is by nature love, which means that he is by nature a giver. Right? Better to give than to receive. It's who he is. He loves to give. And he especially loves to give you wisdom if you go to him in faith and ask him for it. What more confidence do you need, guys? Even look at the end of that next, look at the end of the verse in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives and what? And it will be given to him. You'll get it. So God loves to give. And if you need wisdom to understand what to think, what to do, how to love, then go to God in prayer and ask him for it, knowing he will give it to you because he's a giver. Now listen, you may not like the wisdom he gives, right? Uh, and, and you may not uh, like the way or, or the time in which he gives the wisdom, but he promises still to give it to you. Wisdom asked God by requesting wisdom from God, knowing God will give it because he told us he would. And he's never not made good on a single promise, including offering you his son. So why would we doubt that he wouldn't give us wisdom amidst the trials? But the second aspect of the character that we need to remember when we pray and ask for God is that he not only gives, but he gives in a certain way. He gives generously. Generously. You see it there? 
But think about this as we think back through scripture. Solomon asked for wisdom from God. And God didn't just give him wisdom. He made him the most wise man of all. Right? We can think about the story of Job. Right? In the end, he could count it all joy. Job could. In Job 42.10, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He's a generous giver. The paralytic, right, wanted to be healed by Jesus. And not only did Jesus heal him, but more than that, he gave him the forgiveness of his sins. And for those of us that believe, God not only gave us his son, that's the greatest gift of all, but he's given us a home with him in heaven. We can know him and enjoy him. In other words, he's given us adoption. He not only forgave us, but he adopted us. He's generous. He's a generous giver. And so in your trial, pray. Ask God to not only get you out, but ask him to give you wisdom so that you can correctly apply the truth. So that you can per- appropriately love God and love neighbor. And know that he will not only give, but he'll give generously. And then third, third aspect of character of God to remember amidst your trial when you're praying and asking for wisdom. Is that he gives generously to all. To all. You see it there in verse 5. As James will tell us later, God is not partial. He's impartial. Right? He doesn't prefer the handsome, the powerful, the rich, or the influencers over the poor, the weak, or the powerless. No. If anything, his heart is compelled more towards those in need. And so God is the definition of wisdom. He's the wellspring of wisdom. And wisdom gives its bounty to all that would come to him and ask in faith. All. No discrimination. To all. Fourth character of God to remember as we pray and ask him for wisdom amidst our trial. We see there, God gives generously to all without reproach. Remember that he gives without reproach. So I wonder how many of you watched uh, in the recent Christmas holidays, uh, how many of you watched A Christmas Carol? You know, if you watched that, do you all remember? You remember when Bob Cratchit goes to Ebenezer Scrooge to ask for Christmas Day off? Do you remember that? point of the movie or the story right he goes and and bob cratchit is asking ebenezer scrooge for a christmas day off and he's anticipating what reproach he is isn't he he's kind of scared he's going to ask him you know do you mind mr scrooge if i can have christmas day off you know sort of like this and, and he has reason to think cratchit does that he would receive reproach right the, Dickens describes him as a squeezing, uh, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching old man. <laughs> so Cratchit had reason to think he was going to be met with reproach. Like he's going to say, can I have Christmas Day off? And he says, bah humbug. And I think that sometimes, consciously or unconsciously, we think God's like that. He's like Ebenezer Scrooge in a kind of way. Like Bob Cratchit, we're hesitant to go to him and ask for anything, much less wisdom, because we think it might be met with reproach. Or maybe closer to the truth, we hedge our bets and don't ask him because we're afraid we'll get disappointed by his answer. But James makes clear, friends, it's right there. If you go to him in faith, asking him for wisdom amidst your trial, he will give, he'll give generously to all without any reproach. He'll do it gladly. At the cost of his son, friend, God made a way for you to pray and be heard. And so go to him amidst your trial and go boldly. Right? Think about it this way. 
right? Uh, if, if my kids were going through a trial of sm- some sort, be it small or big, remember the, the counsel here is various trials. Could be big, could be small. Imagine if my kids were going through some trial. What would I, as their father, want from them? I want them to come to me, right? Right? I've been parenting for that moment in many ways. That amidst their trial, they're going to come to me and say, Dad, what do I do? I don't know what to do. But what if they thought that their dad was like, you know, he's going to be too busy for me. He doesn't care about me or, or he's got some other stuff to be doing. I would be sad. I'd be broken hearted, right? I want them to come to me and ask God, what do I do? Or Nathan, sorry, I'm not God. Uh, God, forgive me. Yeah. So I want them to come to me, right? And say, dad, what do I do in this? What do I, how do I, how do I think about this? How should I react to this? And friends, if I'm that way, as an earthly sinful father, not yet perfect, lacking plenty, how much more the God that gave us his only begotten son? How much more? His son, Jesus, was wisdom personified. And Jesus gave generously of all of his life, as we will remember here in a moment. He gave us all. Right? Jesus gave all of his life to pay for all of our sins. Right? He paid that price on the cross. Why? He shed his blood. Yes, to assuage the wrath of God, his anger for our sins, but also to make a payment so that he might adopt us into his family. So that now I can call him my heavenly father and I can go to him and I don't have to be worried that he's going to get me. He loves me. And so part of the gospel, friends, is knowing that because of the work of the finished work of Christ, I can go to him and pray and know that I'll be heard. And I can go in there boldly, not knowing he's just going to get me or give me a bunch of reproach. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a gracious heavenly father that gave me a son so that I could go into his room at any day and night and ask him for help. How do I do this, God? How can I honor you amidst this trial? And so, beloved, we meet trials of various kinds all the time. God is using them to build steadfastness. He's building in us endurance. And insofar as we let that endurance have its full effect by counting it all joy, it will produce in us perfection to where we lack nothing. But since we're not yet perfect, since we do lack oftentimes, we are sinners, we live in a broken world, and therefore we're living and loving amidst all these various trials. And so therefore go to the source of wisdom. Go to him and in order to try to understand how to love, how to honor him, how to love God and love neighbor in that situation, how to correctly apply the truth. Guys, get wisdom and get it honestly. Don't assume. Don't just go off of your gut as so many do. Don't drift with the shifting winds of culture. Well, culture would tell me to do this. I need to say yes to this and no to that. No, go to God and get wisdom. We're deceived in this world in so many ways. Go to him and get wisdom. But when you go, friend, you must go to him all in believing these things that we've been talking about, trusting that he is willing and able to answer you. Because if you don't, if you don't trust him in faith, if you don't get wisdom honestly in faith from the Lord, but instead you doubt, look at verse 7, well, then you should not suppose that you will receive anything from the Lord. So we've said so far, wisdom knows Secondly, that wisdom asks God for wisdom. Thirdly, wisdom remembers God's character as it prays. And fourthly, wisdom doesn't doubt God, but instead it believes. Wisdom doesn't doubt God. Wisdom believes. Look again at verse 6. 
Let him ask in faith. In other words, ask believing. Ask trusting God is able, willing and able to give you the wisdom you need for your trial. Ask remembering and believing who God is and what he's like. Ask in faith, trusting him. And ask with no doubting. And so you see there, notice James gives both sides of the coin, right? James gives the positive, ask in faith, believing, and you'll receive it. But then he gives the negative. Don't doubt though, otherwise you don't get it. You don't get wisdom. And why does James say uh, the doubting won't get wisdom? Well, because, look at verse 6, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, the doubting prayer for wisdom is unstable. They're not able to receive it because they have no ground to stand on. They stand on shifting sand. They're unstable. They can't receive wisdom because they're standing on shaky ground. Christ is the solid rock. When the rains pour and you doubt Christ, then you have no rock to stand on. So you're left shifting. You're unable to receive that wisdom because you have no ground to stand on. Another way of illustrating this is imagine someone sailing in the Atlantic Ocean, miles out into the ocean, and they've got two boats. The doubter has two boats, and one of those boats is Christ, and the other boat is the things of this world, whatever it is that could be, could, could be tempts him to, whatever it is in that other boat is what tempts him to disobey the greatest commandment to have no other gods before him, whatever that might be in that other boat, right? Could be a certain lifestyle, could be disordered loves, could be things treasured as ultimate things, acceptance, power, money, sex, whatever, that's in the other boat. And he, this doubter, has got his foot in one foot in the Jesus boat and one foot in the world boat. And he's out there amidst the sea trying to keep these boats together. Amidst the calm waters, the doubter's been able to keep one foot in one boat and one in the other. It's not been easy, but he's been able to do it. He kept the boats together as he sailed in the sea, unstable though his footing is. But upon the horizon, a hurricane comes. The velocity of the wind picks up, the waves begin to rise, the sound of crashing waters and the crack of lightning blow all around. The doubter tries to continue what he's been doing, keeping one foot in each boat. He doesn't want to go all in on the Jesus boat. He's still trying to hold them together, but he's no match for the wind and the waves. And soon enough, because he's double-minded, because he's unstable, he gets thrown into the sea. And trying to keep the two together... The doubter gets neither because he's never able to have firm footing, stable footing to weather the storm. And that's what James means here by doubting. Trying to have two feet in two separate loves. Never able to fully receive the wisdom of Christ. And even what's interesting here is it actually appears as though James created a word. The word there in verse 8 for double-minded means double-souled. Double-souled. In other words, the deepest part of a person is uncommitted. They have one foot in two boats, no solid ground. So they have the storm comes and they cannot stand. And James is saying, you can't expect to be answered when you treat God that way. 
You can't claim Christ and at the same time love something as much or more than him, denying his worth and his supremacy. You got to be all in. You got to be honest about your faith. Otherwise, you deny the first and greatest command to have no other gods before him. And so this explanation, friends, of doubt, this explanation of doubt becomes more clear later in the book in chapter 4. Go ahead and flip over there. Chapter 4, look at verse 3. It says there, now remember verse 2 is you do not have because you do not ask. But then it goes on, maybe I ask. Look what he says there. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. How is it asking wrongly? To spend it on your own passions. Stop about and think about that for a second. Remember in our passage in chapter 1, James says that if you doubt, you should not suppose you'll receive anything. That's exactly what James says here in chapter 4. You ask, that is you pray, you have some intellectual assent to Christ to pray, but at the base of the prayer, the true treasure of the prayer is not Christ, it's you. You want to use Christ's power to enable your glory, your passion, which leads to the next verse. Look at verse 4, chapter 4. James goes on to say, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? And if you slide down, look at verse 8, you'll see the same language of double-minded there. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Another way to illustrate this would be to say that imagine being a wife whose adulterous husband makes a proposition to you. And you knew when he made that proposition to you that he was going to go see his mistress later that night. How would you respond to his proposition? You wouldn't even give it a second thought, right? You would know that you were just being used by this adulterous man for his own fancies. You wouldn't even respond. Of course you would say no to that proposition. And so how much more the God of the universe who gave his only son so that you might know and enjoy him as the greatest treasure of all. If you, if we wouldn't respond favorably to an adulterous request knowing it would only be used for their own personal passion then why would we accept God, expect God to respond favorably in light of what he's already given us in Christ? If we're only going to use whatever Jesus gives us for me, for my own passions, to spend for myself. No, such a person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, some of you might say, well, Nathan, unlike us, God's merciful. Well, that's true. Of course he's merciful. But he's merciful to those that come to him in faith. He's merciful to those that come to him trusting, right? For those that come to him in the brokenness of their sin or even in their own weakness, trusting him to show them grace and mercy and lead them into the path of wisdom. Yes, he will answer that prayer. Of course he will. He loves to dole out wave after wave of mercy. That's why James says in that same passage, James 4, you heard me read it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But friends, the king of kings is not going to let you use him like a prostitute whenever it's convenient for you to spend on your own passions. He won't let you use him that way. Jesus said it plainly in Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And friends, we've seen these doubters taking the name of Christ these last few years, haven't we? We've seen a lot of it. 
We've seen how their duplicitous nature reveals unstable footing amidst all the trials we've been through over the last two, three, four, five years. We've seen people claiming Christ and then going to storm the Capitol. And we've seen other people claiming Christ and openly denying clear commands. It's become apparent that either people are not asking for God, for wisdom from God at all, or they are, but because they're double-minded, unstable in all of their ways, befriending the world, trying to serve two masters, go on deceiving themselves, they've not been given wisdom. They are, in other words, the people in verses 6 and 7. Friends, we've been given a front row seat to watching people claim Christ and be driven and tossed by the wind not doers of the word. It's increasingly more and more difficult to keep one foot in two boats. Friends, it's always been that way. It's always been that way. But it's getting easier to identify where the people are that are in verse 5 and where the people are that are in verses 6 and 7. The trials of this world begin to reveal where they actually are loving. If they're pursuing wisdom, and if they even did, they didn't get answers. The call from James here, friends, is to believe, is to trust. Go all in to Christ amidst your trials. Asking him for wisdom to know, how do I correctly apply the truth of your word in this? And not going along with whatever my tribe says or whatever the world says, but what Jesus says, because he's my hope. The pursuit of wisdom in these days is crucial, guys. It's crucial. It's always been that way, but it's especially true this day. And it's not only James that counsels us to ask for wisdom. We see this all through the New Testament. I could go back into the Old Testament. We'd see it everywhere. We think about the entire section of the Old Testament, which is called the wisdom literature. But let's just look at the New Testament and see the other calls for the need of wisdom. Jesus tells, for instance, his disciples in Luke 21, 15, after uh, describing the difficulties of a life of faith, he then says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. We can think about the office of deacon in Acts 6, 3. What was the measuring line for a deacon? Well, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. In other words, they needed wisdom to be deacons in the church, to know how to apply the truth, given the whole Hebrew midwives, her Hebrew, uh, the, the Greek and Phoenician um, woman that were not getting food. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in, in Ephesians 1, 16 to 17. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul goes on later in Ephesians to say that this, literally this right here, the church, the assembly, the assembly of God's people. He goes on to say that the church is supposed to be the manifestation of God's wisdom to the world. Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is supposed to be a display of the wisdom of God in the highest of places. We can think about the book of Revelation. Amidst all of the deception and the attacks from the evil one, we read numerous times in Revelation, this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when trials come, they will test our faith. And as they do, we must slow down, 
Trials tend to want to speed up our hearts and minds. We've got to slow down, slow down, and we must go to God. We must ask for wisdom, and we must get it honestly, believing, faith, trusting that he's willing and able to not only give, but to give it generously without reproach. And we must be the kinds of people that say, whatever it is, he says, that's what I'm going to do. Because I love him. I trust him. He's my Lord. He's the Lord. We've got to be people like that. We've got to know that he's like that. And we've got to be the kind of people that are like that. Time and again, not deceiving ourselves, but going to him to correctly ask him to help us apply the truth. Because, friends, if you're not careful, if you're not praying, if you're not surrounding yourself with people that will speak the truth to you in love, if you're not spending time in his word and meditating on it, if you're not hearing it taught, then you will build your house on sand and you will conform to the patterns of this world and you'll be driven and tossed about by the winds of the world. It's that simple. And when the storm comes, you'll be washed away because you were double-minded, unstable in your ways, using God and whatever capital he might give you for your own passions, not for his passion, for his glory. Don't doubt like that. Don't doubt like that. Believe Trials are confusing and difficult places to be. Build your house on the rock now so that when the trial comes, you'll stand up. And we as a church will stand up as we face the trials over the past number of years. Get wisdom and get it honestly from God so that you can stand up and display the beauty of Christ amidst a world of deception. But before I close... I want to briefly answer one question I know is swirling around in your mind right now as it was in mine all week as I studied this passage. If doubt in this passage is defined by asking only to spend on my own passions, if it's doubt is described as friendship with the world, being double-minded, two, foot, uh, two feet in two separate boats, then don't I do that? Don't we do that? I mean, haven't we all at some level been double-minded and therefore unstable in, the, in this way? Haven't we done that? I think we'd be fools to say that we don't. I mean, think about John that tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So does that mean then that none of us can expect to receive wisdom from God? Does that mean that we're all in the category of doubters? Well, no, not necessarily. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man whose son is possessed by a demon. And the father asks Jesus, quote, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So he goes to Jesus and he asks, maybe not for wisdom here, but he does ask for some help amidst his trial. But did you catch that first word? If. If you can. Notice how Jesus responds. He picks up on that. Jesus responds, if you can, question mark. I would have loved to have been there for that moment, right? If you can, what did his face look like? Anyway, if you can, and then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Exact same language as James. Identical. And then the father responds. I love this. In Mark 9, it says, immediately the father cried out. Now notice, it doesn't just say that he said it. It said he cried out. It said he immediately, Jesus said, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And then he immediately cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
He didn't just say, oh, okay, yeah, I believe, so help me, I believe. You see the crying out, it's coming deep down. I believe, I want to believe this, but I'm having trouble believing it. Beloved, remember this. What we find is Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and out goes the demon. He had faith. Remember what James said in James 4, right after rebuking their duplicitousness, their adulterousness. He says, remember that? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The father not only said he believed, but listen, he took his doubts to Jesus. He even took his doubts. He took all of it. He was all in. He even took his doubts to Jesus. And that's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. Draw near to God in faith. And whenever our hearts are double-minded, wherever we love the world as much or more than God, we even bring that to him as well. Bring it to him. And say, God, forgive me for this. I believe you, but I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble believing you because of this. I love this thing over here. We even bring those doubts to God, that duplicitous nature, bring that to God. And he promises to hear us and to forgive us and to heal us. Unlike the rich young ruler that came in and says, I want eternal life. And he says, I'll do all the stuff you tell me to do. And Jesus says, bring all that other stuff of the world to you. And he said, I don't want to bring that to you. No, no, I'm going to keep that. So that's not faith. Faith says, I'll bring all of that too, if that's what it means to follow you. And even I'm still having trouble doing this. I don't want you, this thing, whatever this thing is, I love it so much. I don't want you to have this, but it's hard for me. And I don't want to give this to you, but I'm going to give it to you. So help me, th- help me with the fact that I don't want to give it to you. That's faith. That's faith. And as we do that, as we seek, as we get wisdom honestly from God, asking God in prayer, Believing the God of the gospel, he will use each of those trials and our wise responses therein. And he'll use them to make us complete, lacking nothing. And so count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. That we as a church may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you do lack wisdom, go to God and ask him for it. And he'll give you wisdom. He'll give you wisdom. He will give you what you need to correctly apply the truth. He will give you what you need to know how to love in that situation. If you go to him trusting him, even in your doubts, trusting he's willing and able to do this. And as he does, he'll prepare you. He will prepare us for home. And when we get home, when we get to heaven, we will lack nothing. Nothing at all. But until then, carry even your doubts to God and believe that he can do it. Let's do that now. Lord, we're going through trials, all of us individually and collectively. We need wisdom from you. God, give us wisdom. We, we're asking because we need it. We lack it. We don't know how to apply the truth in all these various situations that we're going through. So help us to know how to love in these situations, how to apply the truth. We need your help, God. And we, we ask this because we believe that you're a giver and that you're a generous giver and that you give generously to all and that you do so without reproach. 
You're not Scrooge. You're a gracious and benevolent God. As is evidence in the giving of your son. So ask us, God. We ask you. We ask you this morning. Please give us wisdom to know how to walk the truth of the gospel in a chaotic world that's driving us in so many different directions. And God, even the times, forgive us for the times in which we doubt you, that you'll give us wisdom. Or forgive us for our disordered loves. We believe. Help our unbelief. And God, for those that have not yet trusted in Christ, I pray that they would go to you and ask for wisdom. Help them to see the truth. That they would see Christ as greater and be willing to give it all up in order to come home to you. I pray they would do that in faith. And may we do it all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.